God gave us a cultural flower garden. He didn't give us a melting pot. He gave us a flower garden. And there are many different flowers in this garden. And if they have to organize to run their work in their communities and they're still a part of the Adventist church and stick into the, their union and their division and their general, hey, that's wonderful. If we could just relax and let people alone and love each other uh, and stop beating up on ourselves and flagellating ourselves, trying to force feed assimilation of culture. You, you might force feed assimilation of color if you marry. You can force feed culture, color rather, but you can't force feed culture. Culture changes over decades and generations. Welcome back to Advent Next, a theological podcast curated for curious faith discussions. This week, we are talking with Dr. Calvin B. Brock, author of Protest and Progress, to answer some questions regarding the history of the Black experience in the SDA Church. Dr. Calvin Brock was president of Oakwood College, as well as the General Conference vice president, and served as chair of Loma Linda University and Loma Linda University Medical Center boards. While this program is focused more on a question-answer format, we have some future programming coming up that will be geared towards taking a chapter-by-chapter overview of his book, Protest and Progress. We want to thank the Adventist Learning Community for making this program possible, as well as Dr. Calvin B. Brock. This program is part of a larger initiative to educate members on the history of the Black experience in Adventism. If you're not already following us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube, be sure to find us at the handle at AdventNext. I'm your host, Kendra Arsenal, and this is Advent Next. Wow. Well, it sounds like you have such a rich history within the Adventist Church, and you wrote a book. I have it back there on the shelf, uh, Protest and Progress, and you start with helping uh, frame kind of the history of uh, you know regional conferences and even the Black experience within Adventism, which sadly has not been too different than what Adventists, is, what, what other you know, African-American Christians have experienced uh, in the United States. And so could you walk us through some of those kind of key points within our own history? I think right now, especially, uh, we're in a time where we're really wanting to address racial issues and to have an insight into Adventism as a whole to say, you know, how do we look at our history? How do we um, fix the past in some sense? But I just kind of want to get some of your take and, and just hear it straight from the author himself. Well, I think one thing that we often forget is that Black Seventh-day Adventists are a minority of a minority, and maybe of a minority, maybe it's triple uh, or three tiers to it. But the two main tiers that we have to recall are that we are a part of a minority of black Christians in the United States who belong to a church in which we are a minority. Most black Christians in the United States belong to a black denomination. There are six or seven of those denominations, and they are not besieged with the questions that we have or the issues we have or the problems we have. They are black. Black administered, of course, many Caucasians belong here and there, but they are in the genuine and fullest sense. They are black denominations. 
So they, they don't have the encounters, the questions, the issues, the challenges that we have. Uh, and our challenges have been, I think, primarily because or from the facts that or the realities that uh, the church in general, in order to protect its optics and the way it looks and feels, and with genuine reason, I believe, um, occupied or functioned within the confines of the government's regulations and rules regarding black and white association. And by that I mean the rules of separate but equal, which were put in place 30 years or so after we were organized in 1965, separate but equal went into place in... uh, in 1996, so 30 years after after our formal organization, the whole country, the whole country functioned under separate but equal until 1940, 1954, in, in separate but, when separate but equal was annulled. So the church found it necessary to function under those procedures. Now, those procedures meant that if if black people came into churches all during those years, if black people came into white churches, white evangelism and white mission suffered because Caucasians wouldn't weren't happy. They the non-Adventists or Adventists, but particularly non-Adventists, would not attend because we were there. So they had to ask us, please don't come. Maybe they didn't say please, but don't come. On the other hand, blacks had the issue also because if coloreds or Negroes came, were not allowed to sit where they wanted to in these assemblies and were told to sit in the back, and that, by the way, occasioned the first major protest in 1898 by Charles Kinney and the group that told the people at the Kentucky camp meeting, if we can't sit where we want to, maybe we need to have our own churches, not only our own churches, but our own conferences where we can function more freely. Meanwhile, Ellen White was saying, when she, before she went to Australia, she had said uh, in the in the latter part of uh, the 19th century, we ought to love each other and all worship together and no prejudice. And she, of course, was very forthright concerning equality and justice and brotherhood and sisterhood. But as the country tightened, we had been in slavery, and we all know what that meant. After slavery, the Southerners and to some extent the whole white or Caucasian American spirit was was very wounded and uh, blacks suffered the retribution, particularly in the South. We had a president called, whose name was Rutherford B. Hayes, and Rutherford B. Hayes said, you vote for me and I'll take the Union troops out of the South. The Southerners voted for him 
He became president in the 70s, the early 70s, and when the Union troops were pulled out, the wrath of the defeated Southern citizen descended upon the heads of the poor, hapless, hopeless, penniless slaves who'd been freed without the equipment, without the education to really provide for themselves, and they had to start from scratch. So it was an awful period. And then about the time, 30 years or so later, that blacks were beginning to get on their feet, here comes separate but equal. So the church suffered under all of that. And Ellen White said, when she came back from Australia and she saw what was going on, she said, let the blacks work for the blacks and whites work for the whites until God shows us a better way. Unfortunately, many of our white brothers and sisters thought that meant in perpetuity till the Lord comes, to the Lord. They never saw a better way. And as the signs, separate but equal signs that I saw and had to observe as a teenager and uh, to some extent as a young adult went down, our church did not quickly, did not quickly accept or understand how to move into the spirit of the aborting civil rights movement in the 50s or their breakout, its breakout in the 60s. And our white brethren in the South in particular, and to an extent all around the country, still said, well, Ellen White said, uh, Ellen White said we should be separate, blacks for blacks and whites for whites. Meanwhile, the birth of the um, black conferences caused a conflict of, of optics here, which we'll get to later perhaps, but the main line to answer your question of uh, service and association for our church was governed by the state's rules, by the rules of the government, and by the fact that our white brothers and sisters had to make sure that by our presence we didn't hurt their evangelism. And the black brothers and sisters had to make sure that uh, they didn't look bad being rebuffed by non-black Seventh-day Adventists and felt the need to do some things that would assist in their mission, which could, um, by the grace of God, reduce the stigma of being a miscast part of the Seventh-day Adventist church. So... I have a question really quick about this, though. All right. Because, so you're telling me, and this is something I don't understand, that Adventists were okay, white Adventism was okay to say, we will evangelize the racist, right? Like, that we're okay with, if, if this person is not okay with black people, then, then you guys have to go because we still want them. Is that kind of the, the mentality and how? I, I just no. don't, Okay. I think I no I I don't look at it that way. I think what what they were trying to do was mission, and they couldn't do mission with us sitting there. We, they couldn't do mission with us sitting there. It wasn't their fault. They could not do mission with the Klan and the haters, the suffering and angry Southerners. And remember, until World War One. In the and in, in the latter, the wake of World War One, ninety percent of blacks lived in the South. Ninety percent of blacks were in the South. 
So we had a few accessions uh, to the church, accessions to the church in in uh, Rhode Island and in Maine and in those areas where Adventism was following Millerism. And in fact, the Millerites had a few blacks, but we didn't have black people around in, in New England and those places, not many. We were all in the South, and South was in the hard, pressed, hard-wired throes of demonic racism, lynchings, and all the rest. And blacks had to be careful, and whites had to be careful. And we don't sympathize enough, I think, with, with what our white brothers, sisters went, brothers and sisters went through back there in 1870s and 1880s and 1890s and even in the teens. Now, later on, in the 60s, as when I was working in the Southern Union, as I mentioned to you, when they wouldn't let my children attend the church school in the 60s in Atlanta, that's different. That's different. Or when I was pastoring before that in Detroit from 62 to 67, and some of our city temple members wanted to go to some of the churches in Detroit, and they wouldn't let them in in the middle. Now, that's different, and we can talk about that. But back there, I'm just trying to put a little background to it. Back there, it, would, it, it made sense. It made sense. They couldn't do mission, and neither could we trying to desegregate. But as the doors opened up and separate but equal weakened and was finally overthrown, then we went into a, a period where I think a lot of damage was done and uh, a lot of blame can be laid because the church was always um, the last and the, the tail and not the head in what was being done even in the country, even in the country. And de jure, at least, if not de facto, a lot of things were being done in the nation that was de jure. They had laws that said you can do this or that, but really there was resistance in white America. But at least the laws are being laid, and gradually um, it's, it's been better. It, it has become a different scene. Tell me a little bit, let's explore a little bit of what you were saying. There's a period of time where we could have done stuff different and we didn't. Yeah, we could have. We, we were just, I think, in the list of recognized denominations in the United States, the Seventh-day Adventist Church was the 61st, the 61st of all established religions or denominations in the United States to ascribe to the laws that were passed by the government barring discrimination and affirming uh, integration and desegregation. And, and that's because our, well, more than one reason, but one is a carryover of those decades when it was impossible to do good mission, black or white, if you tried to mix up and desegregate, mission would have been retarded and was retarded both ways. So that, that, that spirit and uh, that relationship continued far longer than it should have. And one reason for that, it was a misunderstanding of what Ellen White had said when she said, let the whites work for the whites and the blacks for the blacks, which is a position she did not have at first, 
She did not have that in the earlier 70s, 1870s and 80s, but she had it when she came back and saw what from Australia and she saw what was going on. She saw the lynchings, she saw the burnings, she saw the murders, she saw the riots. All right. But our, some of our folk just hung on to it. And uh, the other reason, and the reason they hung on to it, one reason is, and did not even in the 60s and the 70s, did not even in the 60s and 70s either understand or were willing to give up on those ancient or those faded, those, those, those faded traditions, is that our theology by then had been baked in by the writings, the books, not only of Ellen White, which they misinterpreted, but by books of White or Caucasian uh, Seventh-day Adventist theologians who were telling us what God says, uh, what God says, these were through the through the lens, through the understandings of the of the privileged, of the advantaged. And we had very few, in fact, no scholars to speak of, of the disadvantaged class to tell us through their sociological lens what God says. The Bible was not written in English. So these people studied the Greek and the Hebrew, and they said, this is what God says about the races. But they weren't telling us the truth. They were giving us slanted views of righteousness. It's clear in the Old Testament that the most popular interpretation of God's righteousness is his justice. Justice is what Isaiah was crying for in the 58th chapter of his book. Justice is always almost accompanying any mention of God's righteousness. But the scholars from France and Germany and England didn't see that. So they told us how what the age of the earth might be and how much chariots, how much uh, Pharaoh's chariots weighed and how deep the water was and how wide the path was that took the Israelites over but they didn't tell us about that poor pregnant Hebrew woman making bricks without straw. They didn't tell us about her husband and children and what they had to go through. And they didn't resonate with the poor black slave who was nothing but a, a sex object for her white master for 300 years. They didn't, they, didn't, they didn't tell us what it was like to eat slop in the pig troughs of slavery and have to bow and scrape every time a white person passed you on the street, or to be hung from a tree, strange fruit. They couldn't identify with that. They didn't have crying in their bones. The pain of that poor old man being castrated, or that young man being castrated, or that woman being beaten with a cat of nine tails. They couldn't, they couldn't resonate with that. So they were telling us to get ready for heaven and how great God is with little or no mention of the suffering servants or the fact that Ellen White wrote that God delivered the black race from slavery as verily as he delivered the Hebrews from their slavery, as she states in Southern Word. So because we had nobody reading the Greek and the Hebrew 
telling us what God said through our sociological lens. We drank the Kool-Aid of theology of those writers who for decades interpreted it for us. And we read their English version of what God said in Hebrew <laughs> and Greek. And that baked in. And even today, it still affects not only white Adventists, but black Adventists who are, who are afraid to stand up and do social activist work and afraid to go after the resources, after the, the, the source of, of, of evil, after the source of, of injustice, the sources, willing to put tourniquets on those who have been made to bleed but do nothing about the police brutality that brought it on. Even in the Adventist church, the black Adventist church, there are people who don't understand. So we have a work to do to educate our white as well as our black brothers and sisters. I really love that. And there's something that you had mentioned, and maybe we'll get to later on, uh, that the Protestant church was born, and this is your quote, in the crucible of conservatism. And that, you know, that, that, that Adventists are suffering from that in the same sense. And I think you brought that out beautifully. Oh, yes. Um... We forget, the other thing we forget, we not only forget that <laughs> black Adventists are a minority of a minority and that we have to fight justice out there and in injustice, rather, out there and in the church. And that's something other black Christian brothers and sisters don't have. They don't have that double burden. But Christianity itself was polluted in the early days of its of its establishment way back with Augustine in the fourth century AD who div and he is regarded as the father of Christianity, modern Christianity in many ways or Christianity in its modern um, versions and others Aquinas and Tertullian all those names that we study uh, when we study church history almost to and almost each one was victimized by the theory of private goodness. Let not your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And you can love and praise God publicly if you are in some sort of devotional posture. But if you're doing anything that is outside of that vertical posture, any horizontal activity towards society, be very obedient to the government, as Paul states in Romans 13, but which is highly misinterpreted, so much so that under Nazism, under the Third Reich, Adventists could sit and worship and be, be in harmony with Hitler's policies toward other races. They were so anxious to be obedient to the government. And all of that is a result of this social conservatism which began in the early days of Christianity. 
and all during the 1260 years of Dark Ages, from uh, the time that the Papal Empire rose until the end of, or toward the end of, of the uh, Protestant Reformation, that conservatism was contained in the work of the popes and the bishops of the Roman Church, and when all of these Protestant groups emerged from the Reformation, they emerged with conservative social principles. Beware that you don't you don't anger the government. Beware the government, as Paul says, is from God, and you must be obedient to government, never distinguishing as to how and why that is not absolute when the government is evil. And, of course, um, Adventism is a child of Protestantism. Adventism wasn't born in some isolated way. The Sabbatarians met up with the Adventists and became the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And both were children, the Sabbatarians and the Adventists, of the Protestant Reformation. And both came out of the Protestant Reformation with those values. Now, of course, in the early days, there were, early days of Adventism, there were people such as John Byington, our first General Conference president, Ellen and James White, Uriah Smith, and many others, and I've tried to mention several in the book, Protest and Progress, who fought against that spirit. But their propositions, their opinions didn't, didn't um, overcome the, the stronger wave of uh, hardwired conservatism within the Christian church. It was a mutilation of the gospel of Jesus and his principles and his example. But nevertheless, it soon became baked into Seventh-day Adventist sociality, and we're still fighting its, uh, it, it, its savage and unfortunate consequences. And I, I want to take us back just a little bit, and I, I've asked some questions, and I want to kind of bring us a full circle. You were talking about kind of bringing us into, you know, uh, the formation of regional conferences. And you were, we were looking at the segregated South and why that was necessary for missions. And then you were talking about how, well, the, the barriers began to come down within society of uh, the separate but equal, but uh, Adventists were kind of the last to integrate themselves into that and to advocate for that. So whereabouts in this season did regional conferences begin to form? And what were some of the catalysts for that? As I... As I was reminding, um, separate but equal was not repealed until 1954. Uh, and between 1900, when we had about 100, remember, in 1900 there were about 100 Seventh-day Adventists in, uh, in our church. We, we didn't have many. And by 1909, I think there were 3,500, uh, a number like that. But the point cannot be lost and must be made again that there were so few black Seventh-day Adventists when separate but equal was established. 
And even those few were not allowed privileges of the majority Adventist population in the United States. But they wanted in. They wanted to be fully vested. They wanted to have all the privileges of service and all the amenities as did their brothers and sisters. And as their numbers grew from those early accounts to larger numbers in the early 20s, and they were again very, very motivated to service and mission, but were made to do so without being a part of the committees, without being paid the same as their white counterparts in service, having to travel, and again, mainly in the South in those days, the great migration of blacks from the South began in the early 20s. But these people were rejected, and they were told that they would have to report to their white superiors who then would ordain a man or two who would take the message back to the black churches and who would have to serve, as did Elder Green, who died in 1928, who was the first of the black directors of the colored department, who died from exhaustion, most people believe, because he had to travel from New England to Kansas, back and forth, and it was after one of those arduous trips that he went home and laid down and died, literally. But the point to be made, the broader point to be made, is that these people did not have the same privileges, did not have the same honor, and back there, and even into my time, when I went into the ministry in the 50s and early 60s, when you traveled, you had to call ahead. There were no hotels where you could sleep in, in, in the South unless that city happened to have a black hotel. But you had to call ahead and ask some sister or brother or family if you could stay a day or two and if he or she could fix you a meal. You had to travel in with brown bags and eat your sandwich and crackers and cookies and oranges and apples. It, it was awful. It was awful. And even if you travel on the train, you had to sit on the back of the train. And it, it, it was, or the front, whichever the more dangerous part was. But the point to be made is that these people suffered in mission. These people suffered in mission. And they asked in 1929 to 30, they asked the brethren for regional conferences. We're not a part of your conference committees. We're not being paid equally. We have a mission to do. We want to finish the work just like you do. Give us the facilities. Give us the armor so we can go and evangelize like we should. And the brethren said, no, you can't have that. And don't ask again. Don't even mention it till Jesus comes. So they had to retreat and work and do the best they could, but they did. And by 1943, there were 17,000, almost 18,000 Seventh-day Adventists in the United States. And churches had sprung up 
all around the country. Whereas back in the 70s, the first white missionaries went into the South, into Kentucky and into Tennessee, and they began a few churches. In the latter part of that decade, there was a concerted and a very successful endeavor to bring in black Adventists and churches sprang up in Texas, in Tennessee, in Alabama, and a lot of other southern states. And as these churches were erected, it became necessary for them to have more than an occasional visit from some white brother or some selected black brother. They needed organization. They couldn't be they couldn't associate with the white churches. So they asked for black conferences so that they could take care of their people and do the work. But they were said they were told no in the late twenties and early thirties. But by nineteen forty three, with the seventeen thousand, they were asked to come together and the general conference president, Elder McElhaney, at that time said, we see what you're doing. We understand that you need help that we're unable to give. You need indigenous leadership. And I'm paraphrasing, but this is what it was all about. You need indigenous, not alien leadership in your communities. Why don't you establish your conferences? The brethren were surprised, many of them, but they were delighted. They weren't knocking at the door, banging down the doors, demanding black conferences or else, wanting to be big shots and put their feet upon the desk somewhere with little secretaries. They were pleading for the equipment for mission. And God, through his Holy Spirit, worked on the hearts of the president of the General Conference and others they brought these brothers together and said, now you, it's time to go get your conferences. Some black brothers felt they were just trying to get rid of them and didn't like it. Others felt that love meant that they had to stay in their present suffering positions in the conferences where they were. and They just had to sweat it out and love it out till Jesus came. But the more aggressive black brothers said, yes, we want them, let's go. And that's when black conferences were started. And in 1944, the first and then followed by others, beginning with Lake Region and South Atlantic and Northeast and so forth, till now there are nine of them. Right, right. And I, I so appreciate you kind of sharing that, uh, looking at that, that story and that history. Like right now in our church, because of everything that's happening in our country, you know, we have uh, the George Floyd case, uh, you know, uh, Brianna Taylor, Ahmad Arbery, like all of these things are happening. And there are people in our church, there's a, a petition going around that says, uh, you know, quote, end the segregation of black and white conferences. So one, is segregation an accurate term to describe our present situation? And two, what do you think about something like that? Well, no. <laughs> segregation says you can't come in here. I don't know anything in the Seventh-day Adventist church that's segregated today. I don't know. Pete, uh, I understand the idealism and I understand the good wishes of our younger and some of our older white and black Adventists, but they just don't get it. <laughs> if they had come through it like some of us have, they'd understand the difference between where we are now and segregation. Uh, the opposite of segregation 
is desegregation. The opposite of segregation is not integration. The opposite of segregation is desegregation. And our church is desegregated. I don't know of any, now there may be, but I'm not familiar with any hospital in 1960, in 1955, when my wife was having our first child of our darling three darling daughters, and she wanted to have a doctor, you know what she did? 55. She called around and found an Adventist doctor and his little clinic. But when he found out that she was the wife of the local black pastor, he said no, he couldn't treat her. She looked in the, in the paper and prayed and got a number. Didn't know it, but he's a Catholic doctor. And he said, sure, you come on over. And he delivered our first child. In 1960, in 1960, I had a terrible infection uh, on, as a result of uh, a problem I had with uh, my skin on the back of my neck. And I went to Hialeah Hospital to get them to treat me, and they wouldn't treat me. I'm the pastor of the church in 62, and I was suffering. But they turned me down because I am black. That's, that's segregation. But that's done away with now. I don't know. Hey, our hospitals are chaired by blacks now. I chaired Loma Linda for 11 years. Elder Lee chaired the hospital system, Harold Lee, in, 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 in um, Ohio and in, in Illinois. And, and uh, Elder Smith now chairs hospitals, I'm sure, as president of the Southern Union. That, that, that old day is gone. There was segregation. But today we have four of our nine union presidents are black, four of them. I, I know what people are talking about, but they're mistaken. Segregation says you can't come in. We won't give you a chance. Go home, go away, as they did back in 61 when a group of our students, I wasn't there then, but it's well documented. A group of our students went over to one of our churches, our black church in Huntsville, Alabama, and they stopped the service and said, you got to get out of here. You cannot come in here. Now, this is years after separate but equal had been repealed. They had no business doing that. But they were still stuck in the problems of the 20s and 30s. So, no, we're not segregated. We're not segregated. Segregation repels but there's no state conference, and in fact, the state conference are being inundated, some of them, with black people in Texas, in the New York conference, in the, in the Atlantic Union. You, people go where they want. People go where they want. That's not segregated. What's the difference between desegregation versus integration? Integration... As it, is now mis as it is now misunderstood, <laughs> integration speaks to assimilation. Integration says to people, especially to our majority culture, the white culture, we're going to homogenize here. We're going to mix it up. Integration means we're going to marry, we're going to put it in a bottle and shake it up, and we're going to come out with not white, not black, but a nice tan color or black. Integration says that people of African descent 
have in fact or can be in fact a part of what the framers of the American Constitution spoke of as the melting pot. The melting pot envisioned a social accumulation where all the races could jump in the pot and everybody would be happy. But when blacks jumped in the pot, they weren't happy. And they're still not happy because when blacks show up, they leave. It's called white flight. And I don't, I don't, I don't uh, blame all white flight on racism. We have a social principle known as cultural pull, where, as Aristotle said long time ago, doesn't sound, sound very Aristotelian, but he said, birds of a feather flock together. And that is not only a chromatic thing having to do with color, but it's also culture as it now uh, pans out. Birds of a feather flock together. I, I, I don't blame any church or any group of people from worshiping where they're most comfortable. We have cultural pull that brings us together, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But back essentially to your question, what integration means to whites and blacks, unfortunately, is assimilation and homogenization. But what we need, I propose, and I've written about, is desegregation. You desegregate me and tell me I can marry whom I wish, I can go to school where I want, I can eat, I can sleep, I can function in society on an equal basis. Integration will come. It'll come. They'll be marrying and little babies, but even now, intermarriage, babies of intermarriage are, are called black. So the white race has something to lose, I guess. You marry white and black, and what is your child? Not white. They tried this business about other, but that doesn't make any sense. There's no other. If it's other, I'm other. I've got, I've got Irish blood. I've got Indian blood. I've got African blood. I've got all kinds of blood. I'm other. I'm really other. I'm integrated with other. Other doesn't mean a thing. You, 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 when you marry black and white, your child is black. So a lot of people run away from that. And I don't think we need to run toward that. We just need to relax, let people be who they are, marry whom they wish, and uh, serve the Lord and be happy. I love that. And that there's so, so I'm wondering, like, are we having the right conversation in the church right now? Because there's a lot of people who don't have the same history, the, the younger generation. I'm a millennial. You have Gen Z ha coming and they see these two conferences and I think the optics of it, they say, you know, this looks bad. Like we want to be a progressive church. We want to be a church that, that is kind of the utopia of, of the world and, and black and white and coexist together. And these two separate conferences that are divided along racial lines, aha, it's not fitting the optics. Um, yeah. Is that the conversation we should be having or should we be talking about something else? Well, I think the, the question we should first address is, why is it necessary for a majority-minority culture to have 
structures for the benefit of their survival? That's the first question. Why does a minority, a large and blooming and growing minority culture need internal structures that link it with the majority structure but still provide individual guidance for their for their people that's that's the question and the answer to that is as far as conferences are concerned the answer to that is that alien leadership does not work in a large minority culture. Every culture where mission is done prospers much more heartily when, when the leadership is indigenous, when people who grew up in that community, and you see, every pastor is the pastor of not only his or her congregation, every pastor is the leader or a is, is a community leader. A pastor is a community leader, and the community, especially the black community, which is suspect of its white neighbors, especially the black community, which has suffered at the hands of majority America, especially uneducated black citizenry is is very suspicious they're loving and kind but the work progresses so much faster when it is led by indigenous leadership and that that is true even in Africa in Africa we once had white missionaries and they were replaced by black missionaries and now they don't need any missionaries they have their own Native or their own, their own leaders who grew up in Uganda and Kenya and 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 wherever. It's indigenous leadership, and in the black community. The Warren Commission stated it when it was organized by Johnson in the late '60s or the early '60s. The Warren Commission said, "If we're not careful, we're going to have two Americas, one white and one black," and we do. And to ignore that. And if you don't believe it, check who listens to Fox News and who listens to CNN. Check who's Republican. People want to say, well, we're past the color. We have, we're now in the, what do they call it? The colorless society. Well, come on now. Come on now. We're not past any colorless society. What, what do black people vote? Democratic. Who are the Trump supporters and who are Republicans in general and why? So the question is not, are, are black conferences right or wrong? The question has to do with why do black communities of strength need a, a black caucus in the Senate? Why does the... Pacific Union where I live and where there is no black conference, why does the Pacific Union have a black coordinator who has a who reports to the president and the conference committee? Why does the Pacific Union 
have in its local conferences a black coordinator, no black conference, follow me, but a black coordinator who has a black budget, who has a black secretary, who has a black committee, who has black camp meetings, who has black workers meetings, who has black retreats for his ministers around the world or country. Why? Because in the Pacific Union, just as it is in the Atlantic Union, the Columbia Union, the Potomac Union, you have black churches and those churches understand each other, those communities understand each other, those preachers understand each other, and when they work together and plan together, they do a superior work for mission. And to get rid of them would be to take a step backward, not a step forward, so that if a person wishes to belong to a state conference, which is primarily white-administered, not all of them, that's fine. Or go to a primarily Caucasian church, that's fine. I do myself. I go to a church near me that I love. There are a couple of them. I like their music better than I do the music in most black churches. I can't hear myself in most black churches when the praise team gets up. It offends my sensibilities, frankly. So I go to the white churches and I try to wait till the praise team is through. Then I go to the black church and sit down and hear the sermon. So it's a matter of preference and not a matter of color. It's a matter of culture. And we differ in our cultures. And our black conference presidents are concerned now because so many of its erudite, sophisticated, educated, highly financial members or blacks in their territory are now joining the state conferences. They're joining the state and taking their money with them. But it's okay. It's okay. What we have to do is deal with the issue in front of us and organize in the best way possible to bring these people into the church and let everybody else alone and just relax. Ellen White says God gave us a cultural flower garden. He didn't give us a melting pot. He gave us a flower garden. And there are many different flowers in this garden. And if they have to organize to run their work in their communities and they're still a part of the Adventist church and stick into the, their union and their division and their general, hey, that's wonderful. If we could just relax and let people alone and love each other um, and stop beating up on ourselves and flagellating ourselves, trying to force-feed assimilation of culture. You, you might force-feed assimilation of color if you marry. You can force-feed culture, color rather, but you can't force-feed culture. Culture changes over decades and generations. I, I appreciate that, and, and, and that's something that you know, to really consider there's different worship styles that people like to be a part of, different music, different styles of preaching. For those who, who are saying like, but we want to kind of the, you know, we want the diversity of worship, but we want our structure to be united, right? Um, what would you say for those who are saying, we want to entertain, and this is just things that I'm hearing, this is not necessarily <laughs> what I'm saying, uh, but people are saying, we want to entertain the possibility of a new structure but first, we need corporate repentance from state conference leaders. Like, what are your thoughts about the, the, the corporate repentance part and looking uh, at, and like, you know, the white church really being accountable for kind of their 
past actions and how they've led to where we are today. We, we've had corporate repentance uh, from many instances. I recall decades ago when our fine leadership at AUC put out, or the president there and some of his friends gave some wonderful statements. And even more recently, Dr. Luxton at Andrews, when we had that uh, challenge from our black students a year or so, a year or so ago, Wonderful thing she said, and before her, the president of the Lake Union, uh, Elder Lifsky, as I remember his name correctly, we've had that. That's wonderful. Uh, but these people weren't res- aren't responsible for what happened back there. They, 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 they're not responsible for the ill deeds of their predecessors, but they can still repent for them and say, we're sorry it happened to you. And that's nice, but for me, um, while I accept that and appreciate it, and it tells me that they are at least sensitive to the needs of the day, the great, the great need is not Caucasians um, repenting for what their fathers did. That's all right. But for blacks themselves to get together, I'm more concerned about what Caribbean blacks and North American division blacks think of each other. That's the 800-pound gorilla in the corner. Why do Caribbean blacks think African blacks are lazy? And why do African blacks think Caribbean blacks think they're smarter than we are? You know, that's what's that what we need is for the black groups to drop their unfortunate concepts of each other and to get together and put their money and their talents together to put up better church schools for our young people in the ghettos and in, in, the, in the communities where we don't have any church schools anymore and are losing our young people to society before they graduate from grade 12. Even from grade eight, they're already being oriented to something else. I hope this episode provided some perspective on the history of the Black experience in the SDA church. Please stay tuned for next week's episode as we take a more in-depth, decade-by-decade look at the history of Black Adventism. We also have an upcoming program with Dr. Douglas Morgan, author of the biography on Louis C. Sheath pastor of the first interracial church in Washington, D.C. at the turn of the 1900s. Recommended reading for this week is Protest and Progress by Dr. Calvin B. Rock. We want to thank the Adventist Learning Community for making this program possible, as well as our guest, Dr. Calvin B. Rock. If you're not already following us on Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram, be sure to do so at the handle at AdventNext. See you next week.